Hello, and welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest to come and share with us their experiences about being Black in white spaces. Today's topic, being the dot on the road and reflections. Our guest today is a very, very, very critical part of our podcast team. Guess who? Yours truly, it's me. And I'm excited to talk a little bit today about my experiences on the road as a professional speaker and even some of my reflections on what it's been like to do the podcast and the things that I've learned. So being the dot, the chip in the cookie, the raisin in the milk, the crow in the snow. When I started the podcast, my intention was to produce something or create content that was informative, transformative, curative, and helpful, and probably fun as well. As a professional speaker, I have been doing a talk called Being Black in White Spaces, and that title actually came from a former professor of mine, Dr. Harold Cheatham who I consulted prior to starting to use uh, use the title. And I myself have been the spot or the dot in my workplaces, where I play, where I pray, in my friendship groups, and other spaces as well. And definitely this has been the case since I have been on the road as a professional speaker. Now, I didn't just start speaking. I probably have been speaking since I was three years old. You know, you get your Easter peach speech, heroes, or your Christmas speech, no room in the inn, and been doing a little bit of that. So I've had a mic in my hand for a very long time. Around age 13 or so, maybe older, maybe younger, but uh, I vividly remember being entered into a speaker's contest. And it was here I learned the power of the mic to move people and to soothe people. At this contest, every speaker started their speech this way Mistress of Ceremonies honored guests, officers, members, and friends of the West Philadelphia Baptist Congress of Christian Education. Yep, that was my training ground. And it kind of is where I started to build what Malcolm Gladwell calls mastery of 10,000 hours. Time passed and I continued to talk and speak and try to soothe and move people. And I started doing lady lunches, you know, or breakfasts, a prayer breakfast where, you know, my payment was like a piece of chicken or, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a gift card, but, or, or, or nothing. 
And at that time, I was doing a talk called The Strong Black Woman is Dead. And I talked a little bit about uh, gender role socialization for African-American women and how it impacted our emotional, mental, and physical health. Occasionally, I would do some work with the school or some consultation work or something like that. About five years ago, I really took it up a notch and began to be represented by an agency called Campus Speak and started to travel the country. I've been to the West Coast, to Arizona, California, Indiana, Michigan in the middle, the Southwest of Texas and Arkansas, Alabama, the Northeast of North Carolina, Rhode Island, the South Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And it's been amazing. At times, I'm hyper aware that I'm the ink blot in a sea of whiteness, whether that be in hotels or airports or rental car agencies, all, all the things that are involved with being a professional speaker. And what oftentimes happens is that I will show up to a college or university after they have had a series of bias incidents happen. I speak on issues of equity, inclusion, racism anti-racism. And what I am not blind to the fact is that I am wrapped in a body of brown skin. And I present to the world as a woman. And because of those things, I have stimulus value for people when you put my topics together. And so they can project any number of things on to me in a way that my white colleagues don't have to worry about it. So you think about Tim Wise or Robin D'Angelo or even some of the folks in higher ed, or Kathy O'Beer or um, Mark Cullen, that they don't have to worry about they have to worry about what people are, how people are going to respond to them. I, I want to be clear about that. And it, it's a different kind of thing because they walk in white privilege. Over the years, I've had varying reactions to my content from engaging or slouching or tweeting or giving me the evil eye, whatever that is, or hyper-wokeness or a lot of the stuff in between. And so I get up and I talk about what to do when you step in the multicultural poo, healing in the wake of offense, or I do a talk as well around what it's like to be black and white spaces, kind of how this podcast was born. And well, as every now and then I talk about anxiety or something like that, when intent doesn't equal impact. It's been good. I do my thing, I take some pictures, we tweet some, I jump back in the rental car, and then next morning I am back on a plane on my way home. A few weeks ago, I received a tweet from someone who had an experience with one of my workshops. And the content of that tweet was both very sad and extremely energizing. So let me tell you the story. The woman that sent the text was not at my talk. She was actually at the tutoring center working. I was at this college and university speaking to members of fraternities and sororities on that campus. And let's say out of a room of, I don't know, 400, 300, 500, 
there may have been maybe 20 people of color there. And I was doing the what to do when you step in the multicultural poo talk. And every sorority chapter, it's common that they would have a group chat in the same way that each of us may have a specified group chat with our friends, that chapters will oftentimes have those things. And what started happening is that members of her sorority start to make disparaging comments about me. Everything from my diction to commenting on my speaker fee to talking about um, having an active shooter come and take me out. And all kinds of anger was being expressed towards me. This person that wrote me to the text decided that she would have a moment of upstanding where she would stand up for what she believed was right. And that the language that they were using about me and about the content was problematic and counterindicated, if you will, for what the topic was. She took pictures, copies of screenshots, if you will, of the group text to the authorities at our university. She was eventually disaffiliated from her sorority and then bullied so bad that she ended up leaving that institution. So when I looked at it, and part of what was particularly disturbing was the active shooter thing, as you might imagine. I thought about the Malcolm X quote that the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. And certainly I felt a deep sense of disrespect around the type of violent language that was being used about me. And yes, I I know, I get it. Not everybody is all for equality and justice and um, anti-racism, that that is not everybody's thing. And violence, like for real, but whatever. The interesting thing though, is I actually took a picture with members of the sorority and tweeted it about them being so wonderful and engaged and awesome. And they were excited about that picture as well in their tweet that they thought it made them look good. So as a professional speaker, you know, oftentimes we thrive on the reaction of people in the audience. And oftentimes you can tell that somebody's really not feeling what you're saying. But by and large, that is oftentimes the case. This situation and reading those tweets caused me, a group text, excuse me, caused me to really question that. Like, do we have two different radio stations going at the same time? And the first radio station is me, where people are engaging, they're laughing at my jokes, they are asking me great questions via the live Twitter that I tend to do. They are in it with me. And I'm creating some dissonance, probably, possibly some change that they're going to do something different in their lives. But the other channel is things like this group text, like no way, Jose, you're not going to come in here and talk smack. Smack was not the word that they used. The word they use starts with an S and ends with a T about black 
people. I mean, about white people. You're not going to come in here talking trash about white people. I'll just get up and leave. Just, just really, really just angry and fragile. And I was struck by even the mere talk of racism and the fact that I, my work amplifies racist and anti-racist behaviors that it, people are incensed by it. And it really illuminates how deep seated racism is in our country. I once heard somebody say that racism is so American that to speak against it is to speak against America. But my job is to create dissonance in a way that creates change. Now I'm fighting against the forces that make people want to hold as tight as possible to the dominant narrative and to the supremacy of white people. But it's kind of like doing family therapy. So when you do family therapy, what you find out, the trick, I, I'm a therapist who's been doing therapy for 20 some years, right? So when you're doing family therapy, part of the trick is to understand what the dysfunction is of the family and try to find ways to disrupt it. And so a family's dysfunction might be enmeshment or triangulation or enabling or avoidance or lack of attachment or maybe scapegoating. What will oftentimes happen in the course of family therapy is that people will passively, aggressively hold tightly or sometimes aggressive, aggressively hold tightly to the family dysfunction because it's what they know. It's what's familiar and they don't know what's on the other side. This is how we've always done it. This is who we are as a family. This is how we get down. The fancy psychological term for that is called homeostasis. The actual staying one and stagnant, not moving. If America was a family, racism would be its prime dysfunction. Dr. Ibrahim Kendi indicates in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, that the more anti-racism increases, the more racist acts we will see. The best example that I know of this is in the recent George Floyd murders and then the civil unrest after that. Then after all of that came the um, the counter protesters, if you will. And the same thing happened this week in Wisconsin where Jacob Blake was shot, shot in the back seven times. And then there were protests. Two days into the protest, an anti-protester, maybe a white supremacist, maybe we can just call it what it is, came and shot and killed two people. So what's a social justice educator to do? What's a freedom writer in 2020 to do? What's somebody who is committed to justice to do? Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I can't stop and I won't stop. And 
folks like people in that group chat will move to be on the right side of history or they will be left behind. Now, the interesting thing is I know that my fellow soldiers are like, oh, I'm tired of pushing and pursuing justice. But you keep pushing. You keep pursuing justice and fairness and anti-racism. We may not see all of the results of our work in this lifetime, but I am confident that a change will come. I could not be a therapist and not believe in the power of people and systems to change. But I know that to be so. And it may never be a perfect union, but it can be better for us and for generations to come. Now, my fellow soldiers, you may have to tap out, take care of yourselves, get some rest, only do what you the things that you want to do. When you have that choice and don't do the things that you don't want to do. At the end of every podcast, I tend to ask my guest daughters, what would you want white people to know about making this country more inclusive or making golfing more inclusive or the C-suite or Hollywood, whatever the case may be? And I'm going to answer that today. Make it stop. Like, make it stop. Cause it to be done, as Stacey Brooks Alfonso says. You have more familiarity and influence and credibility with other white people than people of color do. And if you can use that influence and credibility to turn things and eat the elephant one bite at a time, it's will be different. Now, I want to be clear. I don't want us to get stuck here. That racism is not just about us being kind to each other. It's about fighting systems of housing and education and the prison industrial complex and lesser salaries and just the whole complement of things that make up the institution of systemic racism. But you make it stop. Dr. Kendi also says it's not enough anymore to just say you're not racist. That's necessary, but it is not sufficient. And so it's important for you to be actively engaging in ways to make it different for people of color to dismantle the system of racism, but also to build a more anti-racist place. Now, here's the thing. I won't stop. I can't stop until racism is eradicated in our country or until I take my last breath. I will live on purpose. Group chat, no group chat, giggles at my jokes, embracing the content. I will use my voice to build a more anti-racist union to create spaces where race and racism can be discussed and healing can happen. I can't stop. I won't stop. And to all my listeners and daughters out there, 
you can't stop. And please, you won't stop either. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us today where I got to be the guest daughter on this week's episode of Being the Dot. This episode was edited by Nikki Anderson. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette, and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davidsdeliciousdelights.com. davidsdeliciousdelights.com, custom-made, personalized pastries made with a southern flair. Visit davidsdeliciousdelights.com and use our coupon code being the dot for 25% off orders of $34.99 or more. Join us next week as I sit down with an African-American woman who is a member of the Republican Party to discuss being black in Republican spaces. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.